Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and every week I bring you a new story about rebels and revolts and weirdos and whoever else I think is cool. This week, I'm super excited to bring back our first returning guest, Miriam Rocek. You might remember her from the Paris Commune episodes. Uh, you specifically, you might remember her as the lesbian tall ship sailor who once allegedly, alongside the rest of the crew, stole the tourist boat from the bosses who were stealing wages from them and ran the boat themselves. But in addition That's to me. having allegedly done that, Miriam's also a history nerd and my friend. This part's not alleged. That part is is true. Aw, yeah, that's true. It's proven. Yeah. Um, and a great number of other things besides. Miriam, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Excited to be uh, your first returning guest. Yay. And we have Sophie on the call, who's not count as returning guest because Sophie is always here. Always. Sophie is ever present. <laughs> Sophie is our producer. And Sophie, you're with me in the less cool waters of having never stolen a tall ship. Is that accurate? No comment. Okay. Maybe Sophie's just better at uh, covering her tracks than me. Yeah. Sophie does have good security culture. Not that I would know because no one ever knows if people have good security culture. Mm, people no know when people comment. have bad security. Anyway, also not joining us, but present in spirit is Ian, our editor, and the theme music was written by Unwoman, and you should check her stuff out. Both Ian and Unwoman have stolen ships before, because mm -hmm. they're so not many. here to claim otherwise. So, Miriam, this week, what a fun topic. Can't wait. This week, we're going to talk about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which was a desperate attempt by the Jews of Poland to honestly not really free themselves from the Nazis, but to die on their own terms. Um, I have not cried nearly so much researching an episode as I did this time, but I'm going to, I'm not going to like linger on the atrocities of the Nazis in this episode, both Miriam and, and dear listeners, I will, I will tell you that. Um, 
it seems like that's pretty covered elsewhere when when you say Miriam. I yeah, I think that those such things are are generally known. Um to the extent that there are people who don't know, I think most of them are uh not so much ignorant as just lying about the facts. But um yeah, I think I, th- I think it's pretty common knowledge at this point. I hope it's pretty common knowledge at this point. Yeah. And if you're, you know, young enough that you haven't heard of this particular thing, there was a really bad thing that happened and I don't want to be the one to tell you all the details. You can find the details somewhere else. It's worth reading about, unfortunately. So there's three major political players in the uprising. To tell you the story that I do want to tell, there's three major political players and I've got my biases. So I'm going to be forthright about them because a lot of the history is like doesn't announce their biases and then mostly tells the story of one of these different players. So I'm just going to be forthright. I like the Bund, who are the anti-Zionist socialists. I like the Bund. <gasps> I'm not surprised by this, but it makes me happy. So before World War II, they're up to all this really cool stuff, since they're cool people and all of that. And I'm going to focus on telling the story from, from their perspective, in part because it's a tale with characters who are often left out of other retellings of the uprising. So this isn't the story of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. This is a story of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Yeah, know. sounds great. We're going to start with a lot of fun background. And I'm not actually even saying fun sarcastically here, like you might think, based on the the later part of the story. I think I, I got to say, like, I, I mm-hmm. appreciate um, the way that you are being, you know, sensitive about this. I do think that there's like a gingerness to the approach that um, maybe comes from not being Jewish mm-hmm. and having grown up with these stories, um, mm-hmm. because I, I think that. There's a tendency, like, I, I've heard a lot of stories about the Holocaust from members of my own family that are like, oh, here's a funny story. It, it just, it took place in a concentration camp. Um, <laughs> and it is incredibly jarring, I think, if you did not grow up with that, where like, well, you know, that's, that is where two of my grandparents spent like the majority of their adolescence. So they have one or two funny stories from there. And like a lot of people, they think they sometimes prefer to tell those funny stories versus other stories. They have also obviously told me other stories. But um, I think yeah. that that sort of gingerness around like, now we're going to be talking about this thing. Something really horrible happened and we want to be really careful about that. <laughs> it's sort of absent in like people closer to it where it's like, uh-huh. oh, let me tell you about this like great buddy of mine. Oh, yeah. And then he died of, of that, yeah, that sort of uh-huh. approach that. um yeah. That is sort of the only way you can relate to your past if this thing is, if the Holocaust is as present in your past as uh, as it is for people who lived through it. So I guess I want to say that, like, mm-hmm. while I appreciate the sensitivity and I, mm-hmm. I think that it is, like, warranted and, um, you know, shows, shows that you are um, really thoughtful and respectful of this topic, um, it's not necessarily the way that I am used to talking okay. about this. Well, um, you should feel free to to head on your part of the conversation however you would like in today's episode, for sure. Margaret, would it help if I broke the ice by telling you my favorite Holocaust joke? Oh, God. You just, you, the, 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 <laughs> I wish people could see the look on your face. All right, well, I'm going to tell right, sure. it and you can edit uh-huh. it out or, or whatever if you decide to. But um, an old Jewish man, a Holocaust survivor, dies mm-hmm. at the end of a very long life. Uh, hundreds mm-hmm. of grandchildren don't even worry. He's very, very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he dies and uh, he stands before God. And the very first thing he does is he tells the Lord a Holocaust joke. 
And God goes, you can't. That's not funny. And the man laughs to himself and goes, well, I guess you had to be there. (laughs) It's meta even. It is a little meta. Hope you like it. I do like it. (laughs) We're not cutting it. Okay. All right. So I'm going to talk about this guy. This guy's name is Bernard Goldstein. And he lives on in folk history, as far as I understand, as as Comrade Bernard. Um, Can I call him Bernie? You can. I actually even do in the script sometimes. Okay, good. Yeah. Because I like him already. Okay, cool. Yeah. So he's a socialist, and he's my favorite kind of socialist, which is the kind that the Soviet Union also hated. And his life provides a a through narrative to what I want to talk about. So I'm going to start with Comrade Bernard. And I'm going to draw from his book, Five Years in the Warsaw Ghetto, more than any other single source. Uh, You know, I I don't know, he's a very good storyteller and tells a lot of stuff around the Warsaw Ghetto that I hadn't heard before. Well, and the fact that he wrote a book called Five Years in the Warsaw Ghetto tells me something very important about him, uh, which is that he survived. Uh, And I'm really glad to know that going in. Yes, that's the... Oh, so now you can't handle... Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) I look, yes, I prefer it when people don't die. Yeah. All right. So in the English edition of this book, there's this touching introduction written by Leonard Schatzkin, who translated the book from Yiddish. So it talks about how Leonard was raised in the U.S. by Polish Jewish socialists and about how all his life as a kid, he heard stories about Comrade Bernard, who ranks higher than Robin Hood as the, the folk hero of his childhood. But the, the translator, Leonard, wasn't like a politics guy, at least not by what I could find of him. He was a, a bookseller. He wrote books with titles like, besides this book, his books have titles like The Mathematics of Bookselling. He mostly cared about inventory management at bookstores. And I really like this because it, it grounds all of this. It talks about how like politics, leftist politics, they're just normal. Like their pain is this thing that separates us from other people, but I don't know. There's just this this thing we have, this way that people live. And you can just be the bookseller guy who spends all of his time thinking about inventory management while also being super excited about and translating from Yiddish the the, the book Five Years in the Warsaw Ghetto about uh, a diehard socialist. Yeah, I love that. So Comrade Bernard, or Bernie, was born in a small city in Poland in 1889, about three hours from Warsaw which was under Russian czarist control at the time. I like to imagine that his parents named him Comrade Bernard. <laughs> I'm guessing they didn't. It's probable that that came later. They had the, um, you know, not a gender reveal party, but like the whatever the early equivalent of that was just went, it's a comrade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Red instead of pink or blue. Oh, now I want to do that. <laughs> and... So, but his name, or at least him being a comrade, did not come much later than his birth. By the time he's 13, he's reading anti-Tsarist texts illegally. By the time he's 16, it's 1905 in Russia. And for, for anyone listening, Russia tried super hard to have a leftist revolution in 1905. And little comrade, that's probably what his friends called him, he sure as shit wasn't going to let that happen without him having something to do with it. So in May 1905, he joins up with the Bund in a forest for a secret revolutionary meeting. And the Bund, they're this, and, you know, Miriam, please 
fill in or correct me about any of this. They're this uh, secular Jewish organization in Russia at the time. And they do all this neat shit, like they insist on their right to organize as Jews within the larger revolutionary framework at a time when the Bolsheviks were like, no, we want everyone to do everything our way. And a third of their members were women at a time when that was not at all the norm. They, they also weren't Zionists. This is one of their major distinctions from a large chunk of other parts of, the, of, of Judaism at the time. Or not Judaism, sorry, but like Jewish culture. Yeah, like organized Jewish um, nationalism or organized yeah. Jewish identity. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, they didn't care much about the Holy Land. They saw themselves in Poland, for example, as citizens of Poland who were going to fight for their rights where they were. And Bernard wrote about the Bund, quote, It was organized to fight both against Tsarism, which was oppressive to the Jew as a worker and as a Jew, and against the feudal elements in the Jewish community itself. From its beginning, the Bund was much more than a political organization. Even in the early days, it undertook, in addition to its political functions, the educational function of establishing Jewish schools and raising the vernacular Yiddish to the status of a recognized language. It undertook the cultural function of encouraging the new poets, dramatists, and novelists who are using the Yiddish language, refining it, and making it a literary tool. It undertook the function of organizing the Jews into trade unions to defend their economic interests against Jewish or Christian employers. It established health resorts and recreational facilities. It taught a new ethics of the brotherhood of men, of mutual respect, and the dignity of the individual. Yeah, I just like them so much. I love the Bund. I know. And like, I love my favorite cool people episodes are where I get to talk about people who create entire societies of mutual aid and solidarity. So fuck yeah, the boond. And they also, they caught a lot of hate from the government. The government didn't like Jews and it didn't like socialists. So you could probably guess their opinion about socialist Jews. Uh, cancels itself out. They're, they're cool with it now. Uh, yes, I think that's, I think that's what happened. So... <laughs> I also before we uh-huh. before we yeah. go on, I, yeah. I just want to like because I, I think you did give like a, a great and and perfect summary of of the Bund and their whole deal. Um, but the the one thing that I want to like clarify before we go on, mm-hmm. not because I think you don't understand this, but because I think um, it's like a thing that comes up talking to people often mm-hmm. um, is the whole idea of like secular Jewish culture mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people uh, think of being Jewish as, as being of a particular religion. And while it can mean that, um, Jewishness is also a, a culture and like a cultural context and community that can be entirely separate from any religious beliefs. And like the Bund is a great example of that because they were Jewish and secular and like the way that they were secular was Jewish, right? So they weren't just by being secular, they did not stop being Jewish. Um, and like, I think it's important, like when you talk about Yiddish culture and Yiddish language, mm-hmm. like in Yiddish, the word Yiddish means Jewish. Um, if you talk to huh. really old Jews, they'll say that they grew up speaking Jewish at home um, when huh. what what we would usually say is that they grew up speaking Yiddish. So like when they say that they're having, you know, Yiddish literature, Yiddish theater, Yiddish poetry, Yiddish language, it's indistinguishable from saying Jewish, um, all of those things. So just um, the religious aspect is not like the defining aspect of, of Jewishness in this context. And I just think it's, it's important to, uh, to point that out because I think that for people coming from, um, say, Christianity, where like mm-hmm. if you stop being Christian, 
you stop believing in the religion, you stop being Christian. Right. Um, that is not true of Judaism. Um, you can stop believing in God or never believe in God, as many Jews don't. <laughs> and um, like the guy in that joke, maybe. Um, <laughs> and uh, you're still Jewish. Um, if you, you know, you can still like have participation in Jewish culture and Jewishness. And the, the Boond is like one of my favorite examples of ways that people do that or did that. Yeah, yeah. As a uh, Miriam and I have this conversation uh, constantly, but as a as a lapsed Catholic, I'm jealous of that because there are some aspects of that culture that I'm interested in, but I I don't believe in uh, the Christian God. I just don't, and also or the Church. Or anyway, let's move on. So talking about Margaret's personal religious beliefs. Anytime. Yeah. So, Comrade Bernard. He's in the forest now. It's 1905. He's in the forest with 400 of his new best friends. And they're having a, a meeting, a secret meeting during the revolution. When all of a sudden they're surrounded by soldiers, cavalry, and infantry. Uh, soldiers, both cavalry and infantry, rather. And the soldiers are like, who's your leader? Oh, I love when they do that. I know. And do you want to know what they said to them, Miriam? I'm going to give you a hint. It's the single best thing to say to cops. I'm going to remain silent and I want to speak to a lawyer. I was. They didn't say shit. Okay, that works too. Yeah. I, I was going to say nothing. Yeah, yeah they, they didn't say nothing. And maybe they talk some shit. I don't, I don't know. But they sure as shit didn't own up to having a leader or out any leader. Uh, this did happen a lot at, at Occupy, I, yeah. I will say. The, yeah, uh, no. Who's your leader? And then like, it got boring Laughter. after all, just not saying anything. So people would give like joke answers, just like mm -hmm. point to random people, say Spartacus, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. just, just to pass the time, you know, while being harassed by cops. One time in New York, we had this uh, pirate march. And the cops were like, what are y'all doing? What's this about? And I was like, pirates. And they're like, was well, this a protest of the war? And I was like, no, we like pirates. And we were like walking around taking the streets dressed up like pirates. And it was like a couple hundred of us. It was so much fun. The cops That's did not amazing. know what the fuck to make of us. Anyway. They were like, who's your leader? And you didn't answer because they didn't say who's your captain. I know. some meaning. Right, exactly. Like, eh, it depends on we vote. Or... Anyway, we'll do it. A... Okay, so. The soldiers insisted upon knowing who the leader was. The Bundists held strong. Bundists held strong. They linked arms. And they started singing revolutionary songs. Oh. And the fucking soldiers went in with swords. It was not a massacre, at least not by the terms that you might be expecting based on that particular setup. But it was not pretty. 80 of the 400 were wounded by swords. And Bernie has a wicked scar on his chin uh, from a saber cut for the rest of his life. Um, I don't know that anyone died in this. It would be kind of amazing if nobody did. Well, that's kind of interesting, right? Yeah, because you're like, okay, well, there's like a sword, a one-sided sword fight that no one died in. But uh, the implication is that no one died. Wow. I don't know. All had really high hit points. Okay, I don't know. Uh, so Bernard, so he gets arrested. Everyone gets arrested. And all of the prisoners are made to run a gauntlet while soldiers like beat the shit out of them. And he's already wounded at the start of this. And the whole time, he keeps his red flag wrapped around his body under his clothes hidden because, like, you can't let the enemy take the flag symbols and their importance yeah. and all that shit. People with flags, they get really into that. I know. They, they're like, eh, socially. Okay, anyway. So he ends up in the hospital, right? Where and he's 16, he's full of piss and vinegar. So he just pieces out of the hospital. He just does himself a, I'd rather not be under arrest. Goes home. 16-year-olds are indestructible. Yeah. So 
he's all in on the boons now. He moves to Warsaw the next year, 1906, and he goes off to help some fur workers strike. I think the word for fur worker is furry. Uh, I think that's correct, yes. Yeah. So he's off to help the furries with their strike. Him and the representative of the furry strike, they sit down and negotiate with the bosses, and the two of them get arrested again. He's 16, he's on his 17, whatever, 16, he's on his second arrest. And the whole negotiate to end a strike thing had been a ploy. They were like, oh, yeah, we'll totally negotiate with you, but... Really, they just wanted to arrest the leaders, so they arrested them. This time, he can't break out as easy. I guess he's not in the hospital. He gets thrown into general population. And apparently the, the revolutionaries and the socialists were actually sort of tougher on crime than the cops because the cops were all crooked. And so a lot of the prisoners don't like the socialists at this particular point. Ah. And so they're beating the shit out of Comrade Bernard until one guy in jail who's a thief is like, oh, no, that's my Sally from last year. Leave him alone. So the one Aww. upside is that he'd already been in jail some. And the furries on the outside. Okay, I think it's actually furrier. I'm not sure. It's furriest. Furry. I think we should stick with furries. Okay, but hear me out. Furry, furrier, furriest. <laughs> All right. So the, the furriests are like, fuck no. Let our people out of jail. So there's a big boycott of the fur industry in the in. And I guess the Bund maybe organizes this. That's kind of implied, but it's not really explicit. And this is really bad. This boycott is really bad. So the bosses bribe the cops to let Bernard and the other guy out of jail. <laughs> Isn't that fucking weird? All right. That's yeah. not the way I expected that to go down, but whatever right? works. <laughs> right? So he's 17. He's direct actioned his way out of prison twice. Once with his feet, once with the solidarity of an entire fucking movement. But... um. I have bad news for the Russian peasantry of 1905, 1906. They don't win. The 1905 revolution fails. Lots of people are in jail. The radical wave ebbs. Comrade Bernard keeps trying to organize, but people are sick of losing, sick of fighting. Bernard doesn't mind fighting and doesn't mind losing. Uh, he gets arrested organizing the carpenters. He gets arrested organizing the painters. He gets arrested organizing by the ironmongers. Nice. Yeah. Just collect them all. I know. I know. Fifth time is the charm, and he gets exiled to some tiny Polish village. They're like, we're sick of you. Um, and so you would guess, right, Miriam, at this point, do you think he's going to stay content with his new lot in life and just stay quietly in this Polish village, biding his time until material conditions change and are better for revolution? Yeah. I mean, if I had to guess based on the fact that he's a topic person on this podcast, uh, I would say that he uh, hangs out in a small Polish village, maybe picks up woodworking and um, tells people to vote in their local elections. You'd think that. But he actually yeah. escapes exile and heads back to Warsaw. <laughs> and in 1913. OK, so Miriam, I don't know if you knew this, but, you know, people are really anti-Semitic. I've heard that, yes. Okay, there's like a whole big thing going back through history. And yeah. you know how Russia's like extra known twice. for it? Yeah. Yeah. Then there's blood libel. Yep, heard of that one too. It's this whole anti-Semitic like meme kind of that's like Jews ritualistically killing Christian kids and bathing in their blood. Is that a reasonable one sentence of it? Yeah, I know there's um, there's sometimes part of the the story is that we take the blood of Christian babies and use it to make matzah for Passover. Oh, okay. Which anyone who's ever eaten matzah would be able to tell you is clearly not true because um, 
it would have flavor in it. Yeah, as I say, blood tastes like something probably. Yeah. 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 Um, Matzah just tastes like dry. It just tastes like the texture of dry. Um, I really liked it as a kid. I mean, it's, you know, it's fine. You can can put things on it. Um, As many things as possible, usually, if that's what you're eating. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it does not, does not have anything in it besides flour and water and salt. So So um, definitely not, not blood. What about of Christian kids, though? Um, Not even of Christian kids. All right. Well, then that explains what happens next. Because in 1913, there's this Ukrainian Jew named Menahem Bayless. And he's in his 40s. He has five kids. He's completely indifferent to religion. He's a superintendent of a brick factory. And in his town, a Christian kid is found mutilated. And Menahem is a Jew. So he gets framed up on it. He gets accused of blood libel. And this becomes worldwide news. All of the, like, coolest writers and scientists and shit in Russia write letters in defense of the guy against anti-Semitism. And two things of note happen around this trial. First and more relevant to our story, Comrade Bernard and the rest of the Bund, they organize a general strike over the trial. Nice. And do they do that by tweeting general strike now? I'm, I think so. I'm not actually aware of other ways that you could organize a general strike besides calling for one to your 3,000 followers on Twitter. Yeah, I, that seems to be the way people try to do it. Yeah, so that's probably what they did. But actually, they probably did organization and because organization rules and it's a way you get things done. And you you kind of just like can't fuck with the Jews at this point without them doing shit right back to you. And an awful lot of the working class in all of this area is Jewish. Speaking of general strikes, here is a word from our sponsors, all of whom would be incredibly happy if people were to get together with people, create systems of organization by which to exert their will as a laboring class and shut down the economy until such time as society is reorganized along better lines. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. 
Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. And we are back. Okay, so there's this general strike. Uh, I don't know the effects of the general strike, right? I I tried to find more about this, but I, I didn't find enough in time. But... The other thing about this trial that's so interesting, you have this rabidly anti-Semitic court. The jury is 12 Christians, seven of whom are ultra-nationalists, and they find him innocent. Whoa. How badly do you have to fuck up a frame-up to get results like that? Yeah, that's... Uh, that's um, Either the frame-up was very bad or the uh, jury was somewhat influenced by the like general strike going on outside the window. Yeah. I'm I'm guessing a little of both. Uh, there was like, it was like comically bad. They were like, I noticed the child, I hate to talk about a dead child this way, but like, notice the child has 13 wounds, which is a very important number in the evil Zionist blood libel land. And then like the coroner was like, as, as 14 wounds <laughs> on the, the kid has 14 wounds. So they they let him go. And I just, I was like, yeah. basically, I heard about the general strike and I was like, I need to find out why. And I was like, oh my God, of course they had a blood libel case. Okay, so back to Bernard, Bernie or Comrade for short. In 1915, he gets arrested. I know this is shocking to you. <laughs> this time he's at a secret trade union meeting that should have been more secret than it was, I guess. And then Germany invades Poland. This is the World War I time, not the World War II times. And prisoners like Bernard, who's in jail at this point, get taken deeper into Russia. He gets out on parole. So he immediately gets himself a fake passport and fucks off back to Kiev. Whereupon he gets busted for parole violation and exiled this time to Siberia. I've already... No, go ahead. I'm starting to think he's not very good at avoiding arrest. (laughs) That's true. Well, okay. He makes like the up first for couple it. times. It's like, all right, you're you're a teenager, and yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I get it. But like, it it does seem like it's happening an awful lot. But you know what? He gets all of this practice in while the stakes are low. Oh, this works out really well for him. He is having failed numerous times. He he eventually comes out swinging on the not get arrested front. His book is better than any fantasy novel I've ever read. And I say this as a fantasy writer who deeply cares about fantasy. Okay, so, exiled to Siberia. I've lost count of his arrests and flights from the law, but this is exile number two. And 
he does when it's Siberia, they they really mean it. I know. And so um I don't know. Do you think he's gonna connect some elaborate escape plan and then pull it off? I mean that, or he's just gonna like walk away and be like, I'd rather not. Sophie, what's your guess? Uh I've already run ahead. I can't I, I'm so biased that I can't oh, really give my answer true. without without lying. It's true. It'd be unethical for you to guess. Sophie reads the scripts along. I was like, I, I, I read what happens, so it won't be elaborate I scheme it is. This will it. be shocking to almost no one. <laughs> so and it's a little bit of elaborate scheme and it's a little bit just taking advantage of circumstance. So he gets sick, like actually sick. And he wants to go to the doctor, but this is Siberia and he's a prisoner. So the doctor is 50 miles away. So he goes to the head cop guy and he's like, hey, bud, let me uh, let me go to the doctor so I don't die. And the head cop guy, he's suspicious. I mean, OK, fair. This is this is Comrade Bernard, he's, you know, <laughs> so he starts inspecting Bernard, like lifting up his eyelids to see if he's sick. You're a nurse. Is that a thing? Hey, a classic uh, eyelid check. That's, oh, yeah. that's how you know. That's how you know if someone's sick. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And so so Bernard gets sassy and he's like, oh, you're a doctor now? To the guy who's like lifting up his <laughs> eyelids. Which is not what I would say. I, I wish I would have this courage of someone <laughs> lifting up my eyelids and they control whether I live or die. I don't know. I don't know what I would say. Yeah, when, when somebody who is allowed to kill me has their fingers in my eye, that's like yeah. not a moment to get sassy in, in my opinion, but... <laughs> but... But the evidence says, so the head cop doesn't like this. So he smacks Bernard. So Bernard, he in turn does also does not like this. So he picks up a kerosene lamp and breaks it over the cop's head. Okay, a measured and considered response. Yeah. And okay, immediate effects are negative. Uh, the guards come in and beat the shit out of him. Um, but the story does the rounds. Everyone, comrade Bernard broke a kerosene lamp over that cop guy's head. And all the exiles get worked up and excited and they they send a petition. And finally, the governor of the region intervenes and is like, fine, whatever. Bernard can go see the doctor if it'll <laughs> shut these people up. I love Direct that. action gets the goods. How sick could he have been if he's up for breaking a kerosene lamp over yeah, somebody's head? Fair enough. OK. But I'm a wimp. Like when I'm sick, I can't do anything. <laughs> So he gets to the doctor, and the doctor's like, oh, fuck, you're sick. Um, but it's not tuberculosis. Don't worry, dear listener. It's pneumonia. And the doctor's <laughs> a bud, a fellow exile. I assume they called each other buds, all the exiles. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't have. So the doctor is like, okay, he has to stay here for treatment because he's sick. And so then Bernard gets better, and the head cop guy is like, give me back my Bernard. But the doctor is like, oh, no, he's still recovering, even though he was fully recovered. So he gets to just like stay there and he gets a, you know, basically gets his doctor's note. That's like, I don't have to go to exile today. <laughs> and he spends his time like hunting and fishing until. But it's therapeutic hunting and fishing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, convalescence or whatever. Until the fucking Russian revolution happens. Nice. He just waited it out. Yeah, yeah. You're like, all right. Well, some... And honestly, that's one of the main lessons I get from a lot of reading history is that like shit's gonna change <laughs> the existing systems might not be the systems in the future there's like long chunks where shit doesn't change it's not there's no guarantee but ah whatever okay so because like it seems like the main reason not to die is so you get to live through so many historical events at least when things are really bad i don't know whatever okay i'm not telling you why to 
Well, know. or at least at least to live through different historical events than the ones that are currently happening to you. Totally. And like, I don't know, it's like you have to tell the story of the Russian Revolution or tell the story of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. You don't have to, but I'm choosing to. And because I think it provides good context because all of these people, they're not numbers, they're people. They have beliefs, they fight for those beliefs. Before the events that they're remembered for, they're still doing all kinds of shit. As soon as the exiles hear about the revolution, they're like, it seems like we should be in charge of this town instead of the cops. So they round up all the cops and disarm them and raise the red flag over the town. Fuck yes. <laughs> You're getting me like way more excited about the whole red flag thing than I would normally be. Right, right. Especially because he stays on the right side. Okay, anyway, so in the middle of fucking nowhere, Siberia, I guess all you have to do to have a revolution is round up the cops, disarm them, raise the flag. I mean, I guess they could have done that at any time. Yeah, I mean, you know, okay, so then... They probably would have gotten reinforcements if there hadn't have been a revolution happening. Right. And so this, this uh, unaware of the revolution or the fact that the revolution has hit this small town, a, like, head head cop guy, the head cop guy's boss, shows up, and the revolutionaries take him prisoner, and Bernard Goldstein is supposed to kill him since he's the one who has suffered the worst, right? So they tie him to a tree, get out the old revolver, and this head cop guy just breaks down, sobbing in terror. And so Bernard's like, fuck it, and doesn't kill him. And he says, basically, to quote the, the translator, uh, Leonard, the victorious revolution must show a humane attitude even to an evil servant of the czar. Wow. I know he wasn't a Bolshevik. Yeah. So Bernard, he fucks off out of exile because he's not in exile anymore. And he winds up in Kiev in Ukraine and he helps organize a Jewish militia and then helps overthrow the fucking reactionary government. Love that for him. Yeah. I'm going to be picturing him swinging like swinging a kerosene lamp, like just sort of on the barricades. Goes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, don't fuck with Comrade Bernie over there. You're going to get a yeah. kerosene lamp to the face. And so he's like, all right, Poland is independent now, so I can go home. So he goes home to Warsaw and he gets involved in the boond there. And Poland isn't having a communist revolution at this point, but the labor union is getting strong again. And he goes and he just throws himself into labor organizing after multiple successful revolutions. And he goes and he, he works to organize the least organized trades, the places that are most resistant to socialism and trade unionism, because he's just like fucking made out of charisma. Like any problem he has, he rolls charisma to solve it. Uh, or sometimes he rolls kerosene lamp attack, which is I think a, a dex based attack. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. And he he winds up head of the defense groups or militias or whatever who fight off Polish nationalists and fascists and shit like that. And in Poland, at least, the the Bund trying to organize for socialism ends up with one other enemy to fight. The communists. Yep. To quote Leonard Shatskin again, who is pulling mostly from a biographical sketch that introduced the original Yiddish version of this book. In their campaign to split the labor movement and destroy the socialists, the communists stopped at nothing. They used intimidation freely. They would often send groups armed with revolvers to break up workers' meetings. Once they even attempted to disperse a national convention of the Jewish Transport Workers' Union with gunfire. They did not shrink from a shooting attack on the famous Medem Sanatorium for Children. The attacks were carried out by Tufts who received from the communists an ideological justification for their own predilection for violence. And so there's these street fights happening, right? But the socialist militia, overall, they actually still refuse to go on the offensive against the communists. 
they they're training for it, but they're like, it'll just be a fucking bloodbath. And they like don't want to shoot their fellow workers. Um, they would defend themselves though. Yeah, if only the communists also didn't want to shoot their fellow workers. Yeah. Yeah. So the Communist Party, uh, even though Bernard is literally a huge part in why socialists aren't like going on the offensive against the communists, the Communist Party declares a formal death sentence for our man, Comrade Bernard, the one who has led two successful revolutions. What makes them think they're going to be able to carry that out? Like at this point. How'd you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One day he's coming home, probably from organizing something or doing some dramatic weird thing that everyone's his friend or whatever because he's a folk hero and he's ambushed by a bunch of gunmen but he's armed too and he shoots back and he drives the attackers back he wounds one of them the attackers grab their wounded friend and fuck off and the communists don't fuck with him anymore because he fucking shot one of them who tried to kill him wise decision yeah this guy has unlimited hit points and unlimited charisma (laughs) yeah i know right he's kind of american like okay so this is like one of the things right like I can't back up most of this with multiple sources. There's not in English that I've been able to find a lot written biographically about about him. But it it then goes on to basically paint him as the kind of the king of mutual aid in Warsaw. He's out there organizing people. He's keeping everyone calm. He's mediating disputes between workers. He's like getting workers to work on their hygiene. <laughs> like there's this whole aside... That's- Something else we could have used to occupy from time to time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like at one point he goes to this party and the, the the there's like fancy food and drink at this party at this worker's house. But but Bernard shows up and the the guy's like wife and kids are in like rags and he walks out and like, oh no, what's the what what happened? And he's like, You you can't spend money on this stuff while like your your family is like not being treated well until they have decent clothes until you've taken care of them i will not and so then instead of getting mad the person like solves the problem and then invites him back and they have a new party where everything's better oh i didn't even write that one down in the script i just got excited about it uh i like this guy a lot i know i'm really glad i know he wrote a book <laughs> i know because that means he's gonna make it yeah and he's not the leader of the Bund or anything like that, right? He, right, right. He's leading a bunch of the militia and he's doing a lot of organizing, but he's definitely not the king of mutual aid. He's not the, the monarch of anything. Wait, who is the king of mutual aid, Margaret? Who did we? Uh, did we ever pick them? What's uh... well, the the coronation ceremony isn't until next year? Oh, There's okay. going to be the um, what's the uh, word for when everyone gets together and fights the death? Battle Royale, uh, I don't know, the Mutual yeah. Aid Royale. Um, anarchist Revolution. Uh, re- <laughs> oh, God. I meant to say election. Can we pretend that I said election? <laughs> I tried to say the phrase anarchist election and it wouldn't come out of my mouth. It turned into anarchist revolution, which makes more sense as a concept, but less sense as a joke. Yeah. Whereas the everyone fighting each other to find out who's the king of mutual aid is more like the Bolsheviks stealing the... Okay, so... Uh... <laughs> So one of the problems that's happening for everyone, including especially in the Bund and especially for Jews in Poland, is that anti-Semitism, which was already real bad, gets real worse when Hitler comes to power over in Germany. No way. I know. You'll be shocked to know this. You think everyone would be like, oh, well, we don't like Germany. So okay, so even before Hitler invades, Warsaw got real, real shit for Jews. There's pickets at Jewish businesses. Jewish students keep getting segregated in classes. There's random attacks. 
the government isn't helping. Only community defense organizations can help, which actually included a decent number of non-Jewish Polish workers. The Basically, the hard work of the boon kind of pays off here. Most of the socialist workers in Poland don't go fascist. Kind of a terrible fact of history that a lot of socialists went fascist during the 1930s. But the Polish support of Jews was spotty, as we'll get to soon. And the Jewish militias were often alone. But if nothing else, they managed to kind of keep the numbers of their overt enemies, the, the fascists, from shooting through the roof. The Bundes militias, they set up flying squads and they wait by the phone, ready to like run off in defense of anyone who's being attacked. And at one point, the the fascist party, there's a couple fascist party, but the ones that are like, we are the fascist party, are called the Falange. And they they bombed the headquarters of the Bund. They, they set a time bomb there. So Jewish and Polish socialists march over to the Falange headquarters and smash up the entire building and then beat the shit out of everyone they find there. Nice. And then there's another folk hero moment. This is the one that I doubt the most. I I just want to let you know, mm-hmm. I've already decided to believe it. Yep. I don't have a counter argument to this. Okay, so it's it's 1930. There's this pogrom in a nearby town because a Jewish guy killed a Polish guy and anti-Semites freaked out. And Bernard and someone else from the Bund, they go over there and they make contact with the non-Jewish socialists in that town, the Shoemakers Union. And they try to figure out how to stop the pogrom. And at one point, a right-wing mob torches an abandoned Jewish house. The people who lived there had gone into hiding somewhere else. And the fire spreads to the house next to it, which happens to be non-Jewish. And fucking Bernard runs into the burning building, gets the kids out of the blaze, and then runs up to the roof being like, we need water. We need water. Come come fight this fire. And the crowd, which is not the angry mob crowd that has moved on. This is the crowd of like curious workers and shit, you know, is like, holy fuck, a Polish house is on. F-. I'm paraphrasing here. Holy fuck, a Polish house is on fire. And this Jewish guy saved everyone. Fuck the right wing. Fuck the pogrom. <laughs> and Jews in town came out of their barricaded houses and race relations were saved in the town. I absolutely choose to believe that. I also have questions about how he got off the roof. Yeah, I mean, it must not have been that on fire or something, right? Like, why would you run into a house, save the kids, and then run up to the... Maybe he escorted well, he already, the kids. Okay, so he 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 ran in, mm-hmm. got the kids out, yeah, and then ran back in just to get up on the roof and yell. Yeah, maybe... That... Or maybe he, like, passed the kids out the second-story window to people waiting below, or, like... Could be. Uh, maybe tied bed sheets together to make a rope just to go full. I don't know. But what I do know. And then he got up there on the roof and he was like, a Bundist on the roof. It yeah. sounds crazy. You know? <laughs> Sorry, there was going to be one Fiddler on the Roof reference in this portion. Like I was, we weren't going to get away with that one. No, that's fair. And you know what else we're not going to get away with? Or get away without? Great, great. Thanks. Yeah, that was that was really slick. Yeah, thanks. What are we advertising today, Margaret? Well, okay, so uh, of course, we are sponsored, as always, by the concept of potatoes. And yeah, boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Yeah. (laughs) But what do you what do you want to be sponsored by something that's wholesome and not an actual product? Oh, or a specific brand of a product, you know, I like music. Mm -hmm. Okay. The concept of of music, okay, of uh, you know, sound played for enjoyment, okay. and expression. Okay, so the early Quakers are not sponsors of today's podcast. Yeah, that's 
That's probably true. But the modern Quakers could be. So we are sponsored by uh, potatoes, music, and all of these other things. Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. And we are back. And I've got one more story. Well, there's a bunch of stories, but one more of these specific ones. It's 1936. It's an election in Lodz, which is a city that I should have looked up how to pronounce. It's the second biggest city in Poland. I think it's Lodz. Uh, Lodz. But, cool. you know, if I'm wrong, uh, people can be mad at me about it. Yeah, get mad fine. at Miriam at I write OK on Twitter. Yes. I was about to say the exact yeah. same thing. OK, so the index, they're the other fascist party. They're the National Democrats. And basically in Lodz, how'd you say? Well, I said loads, but, loads. you know, if you We're start saying it and then I turn out to be wrong, like. No, it's fine. So the index, they're the other fascist party, the National Democrats. And they're basically like, if Jews show up to vote, we'll fuck you up. And the socialists, they don't have the numbers necessary to protect all the polling places uh, or to bring the fight to the enemy. 
So Bernard, he goes to the local Jewish crime lord, who's this tiny old wrinkly dude named Mandele, the king of the strong, who rules a chunk of the underworld that is both Jewish and Christian. These are fantastic. Right? Speaking I of this being this an old timey play. <laughs> yeah. And these folks are not left wing. Their their politics is I want to be a crook, which I believe is its own <laughs> political affiliation on the map. It Venn diagrams with a lot of other ones. Oh, for sure. You find crooks in, in most political affiliations, but uh yeah. I like when that's just somebody's whole thing. Yes. Yeah. That tells you a lot about where they'll go in any given situation. Totally. And this guy, he's king of the strong. He has such strong control over the crooks that he's able to convince even the Christians that they have to go fight to defend the Jews. So the crooks in the socialist militia, uh, the latter mostly imported from, from Warsaw, they're like, hey, fascists, if you show up, we'll fuck you up. And it probably would have been a fair fight, right, at that point, because you got kind of equal numbers. And do you know what fascists think of fair fights, Miriam? I don't think that's like their preferred approach. It's not. So they didn't show up. There's a few small fights here and there, but basically democracy and more importantly, not fascism was protected by a bunch of thieves who are just fucking rules. <laughs> Love that. And in case you're wondering, you know, like, oh, maybe Comrade Bernard's getting too big for his britches, right? He's like, you know, rolling charisma and everything. Maybe everyone he else wouldn't is... do that. No, he's not making other people Comrade do his Bernard dirty work. Comrade Bernard wouldn't do that. No. He's throwing down in fights in his 40s. At one point, he gets arrested while fighting, and they're going to send him to a, a concentration camp, and I really don't know what that means in pre-Nazi context um, in Poland. I don't, I don't know. And But basically, the head of the Bund is like, you, you're not going to do that to Bernard. And so it didn't happen. Um, and then in this meeting, the chief of police is like, who's in charge of Warsaw, you or me? <laughs> don't ask a question you don't want to hear the answer to there, officer. He did not want to know the answer to that question. And in case you think that they're a small faction, by 1938, the anti-Zionist secular socialist boon was receiving the overwhelming majority of all Jewish votes in Poland. Like 17 out of 20 seats were occupied, that were occupied by Jews are Boondists. Hell yeah. And that's a story before we get to the fucking German invasion in the Warsaw Ghetto. So that's just some light context. To quote Bernard again, it was at the highest point in the Jews' climb towards recognition as a human being with national and social rights that Hitler struck him down. So there's this whole war thing, a world war, a, a, a second one. On September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland again. And Poland is way the fuck outmatched. The Bund and the Polish socialists, they buddy up immediately in defense of the country. The Bund tosses around the idea of telling the rest of Warsaw, like, hey, we should resist as a city. But they decide not to because they're like, we can't get everyone killed, especially not as like the Jews. It'll go really badly. And also the Bund is like kind of more strategic in its use of force than a lot of the other political actors, it seems like. Um, this is not to say what was strategic or ethical in this situation. This is just kind of what they chose to do. Instead, the Bund kind of like fucked off out of the city mostly and fought outside the city in the resistance. Um, except then the rest of Warsaw decided to resist the Nazis anyway, I think spurred on partly by the, the Polish socialists. And so then the Bund also went and fought in that whole thing. And they get besieged. Warsaw gets besieged and it gets super fucked up by the Germans. Things are looking dark for our heroes. But then on September 19th, a glimmer of light in the north, like a dawn, like a red dawn 
the Soviets are coming. Surely they'll save us here in Poland. Margaret, <laughs> I know you're never going to say a good thing about Soviets. I got to find at some point. You can't point, fake me out like that. I know. At some point, I'm going to find some cool Soviets because there are the, the actual I'm sure rank and cool file individual yeah. Soviets for sure. Yeah, for sure. I just um, when you when you use it as a collective noun in that way, I just don't believe you that there that anything no. good is going to happen. No, but the unfortunately, the Polish resistance did look to the Soviets coming and thought that they were there to help them. Uh, but just kidding, the Soviets are allied with the Nazis. There's this whole thing, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, where Stalin and Hitler, well, I guess Molotov and Ribbentrop, divvy up Poland like a turkey. Two years later, of course, Germany invades the USSR and they become enemies. But at the beginning of the war, Soviets are like a little bit buds with the Nazis and go off and capture some of Poland together. And the Polish army was order, under orders not to fire on the Soviets because they thought the Soviets would hopefully come help them or save them. Um, I, Miriam, how old were you? Like, I was in my 30s before I realized that the Soviets started off World War II friendly with Germany. Um, I was not. Okay. You... <laughs> I was, I was younger. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but I, I grew up with a somewhat more direct connection to, to some of these issues. Yeah. And, um, also, uh, just, I don't know, I think I got quite a bit of World War II history and in school. So yeah, that was something that I knew okay. that they had started out as allies of the Nazis. And then later on, it's, it's funny because it's kind of like, um, America, like America doesn't like to talk about the fact that, um, the USSR was part of the allies yeah. later in the war. Yeah. Um, and people who like the USSR don't like to talk about the fact that they were the allies of Nazi Germany early in the war. So it's like, uh, just very, uh, a very an oddly touchy subject. Yeah, the USSR was fighting on at any given time. Yeah, totally. And I think they were like not technically allies, but they were close enough friends to invade a country together. Um, which is I like, mean, if that's not allyship, that's that's hashtag allyship right there. <laughs> I was thinking it's more like friends with benefits than partners. Sure. I don't know. Okay. Ugh. So. The Soviets, they capture and execute several prominent members of the Bund and the Polish socialists. Uh, later, actually, the Nazis are like storming around Warsaw trying to find this one particular socialist, socialist leader, thinking he escaped somehow and was living underground. But nope, the Soviets had already found and executed him. I don't know if my displeasure with the Soviet Union has been adequately expressed on this show. <laughs> yeah, Margaret, how do you feel about state communism? Every and single the Soviet time. Soviet Union in particular. Every single time I research history that should have nothing to do with the Bolsheviks, they're there as villains, not living up to what they promised that they were supposed to be. Well, they're like they're like the opposite of the Quakers who keep popping up in your research. Yeah. It's like pretty chill. Yeah, totally. Um, so the Soviets, they rounded up and summarily executed 22,000 Polish officers in what's called the Katyn Massacre. They arrested at least a quarter of a million po Polish soldiers and sent like 43,000 of these prisoners to their friends with benefits, the Nazis. I suspect that this did not help the Polish resistance against Nazism. I'm going out on a limb here. I'm not a historian. Seems like starting out with a disadvantage. Yeah. Yeah. So Warsaw scarcely withstands this, the siege from the Nazis and the whole city's fucked up as hell. 30,000 people are killed. 10% of the city is destroyed. People are left carrying their water up from the river, and there's not enough fuel to boil the water. 
And the Nazis immediately set to work turning the Poles against the Jews, which was often easy to do in this time period. Um, they set up soup kitchens for Ar Aryans only, and they encourage Poles to rat out any Jews they find with the audacity to try and like actually eat food. And I'm going to skip some of the details about some of the bad things um, because I'm sensitive. <laughs> but right from the start, they force all the Jews to register and go off and do slave labor and rotation. They set up the, the Judenrat, Judenrat, uh, which is ostensibly the self-government of the Jewish people and immediately task it to build themselves a ghetto. One of the members of the Judenrat at this point is a, also a member of the Bund, Archer Ziegelboom. And he just flatly refuses. He, he says, I'm gonna, I will fucking die before I help organize the building of the ghetto. And he gives speeches publicly to this effect. And this resistance from within the Judenrat delays the construction of the ghetto by, by months. Uh, he might not wow. have been the only one to resist, but I'm not, I'm not sure. And I, I want to tell his story really quickly because he's really cool. Archer Ziegelboom uh, was born in 1895 to a desperately poor Jewish family. He's one of 10 kids. By the time he's 10, he was working in factories, I think glove-making factories. He gets involved in labor organizing. He joins the Bund, and soon he's part of the city government in the city of Lodz. Lodz. When Germany invades, though, he, he leaves his temporary safety and goes to Warsaw to help organize the defense. In particular, his whole thing is he's coordinating between the Jewish and the Polish militias to make sure that everyone's fighting on the same side. And when Nazis took control of the city, they demanded 12 hostages from the city. They're like, we want 12 of your high-profile people so that uh, we can kill them if you all resist. Right. And um, the mayor picks this, uh, this Jewish woman, and Arthur volunteers in her stead. Like, literally, like, straight-up Hunger Games. It's just like, no, it's going to be me. I'm going to be the Nazis hostage. And then... He's let out after a bit, after they release the hostages, I think. Uh, and he opposes the building of the ghetto, and his friends and family smuggle him out of the city because he has been real public about this. And I watched an interview uh, with his cousin about, about this, part of the Yiddish History Project. He goes around Europe and the U.S., and he's trying desperately, in vain, to convince the world what's happening to the Jews in Nazi-occupied territory. Eventually, he winds up in London, and he joins an advisory board of the Polish government in exile there. There's actually this whole thing where the, the Polish government in exile recognizes the Jews substantially more than the Polish government, not in the, the resistance right. movement in Poland. And while he's off doing this in, in, in London, he's like, well, fuck no, I'm not organizing with Zionists, right? Because there's this whole split yeah. in the movement because he's a Bundist. And then eventually, after the word of the mass killings reached him, he's like, you know what? We have bigger fucking problems. Uh, and he works to get the, the Bundists and the Zionists on the same page, uh, political disagreements uh, being less pressing than stop genocide. Yeah. And he does everything he can. He writes all the petitions. He gets audiences with all the world leaders. He talks to all the press. He compiles all the data on death camps. He gets all the numbers. His wife and one of his kids are killed in Warsaw while he's gone. Uh, he and others take massive risks to get this information out. They they smuggle a Polish socialist into the ghetto to get information out, and no one will fucking listen. Uh, in 1943, I'm sort of skipping ahead on the timeline to tell his story. He takes the only action he can think of left, and he kills himself in protest of not only the Nazis, but the fucking allies ignoring the plight of the Jews. And he leaves a letter. 
The responsibility for the crime of the murder of the whole Jewish nationality in Poland rests first of all on those who are carrying it out, but indirectly it falls also upon the whole of humanity, on the peoples of the allied nations and on their governments, who up to this day have not taken any real steps to halt this crime. By looking on passively upon this murder of defenseless millions of tortured children, women and men, they have become partners to the responsibility. I am obliged to state that although the Polish government contributed largely to the arousing of public opinion in the world, it still did not do enough. It did not do anything that was not routine, that might have been appropriate to the dimensions of the tragedy taking place in Poland. I cannot continue to live and to be silent while the remnants of Polish Jewry, whose representative I am, are being murdered. My comrades in the Warsaw Ghetto fell with their arms in their hands in the last heroic battle. I was not permitted to fall like them, together with them, but I belong with them to their mass grave. By my death, I wish to give expression to my most profound protest against the inaction in which the world watches and permits the destruction of the Jewish people. And then he uh, had his body cremated in solidarity with those who were killed in the camps. And I cried a lot while writing this episode. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. that's, I, I'm glad that you read that. Um, it's one of the big lies of, of U.S. history is that um, America fought in World War II in order to save the Jews. Yeah. Um, when America could not have given a fuck. Um, yeah. And it's um, very, you know, it's powerful to hear a, a voice for who was trying to get people to care at that yeah. time. Yeah. I Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it kind of feels like the only people who are fighting for the Jews were the Jews and then some of the some of the leftists in various places. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's that's accurate. There were there were other people who were like helping in very I don't want to like that's make a true. blanket statement. No, that's true. Um, because there were there were people who were helping in, in various places and like for various yeah. ideologies and, and reasons. But like as far as um as like the most powerful world governments, no. Yeah. Yeah. So there's one more thing I want to talk about today, which is there's this annoying question that goes around. Why didn't the Jews fight back? And Miriam, I think you've prepared something on that topic. Yeah, I I kind of wanted to to have something to say to like the the potential straw man there. Um, yeah, because that that is a question that gets asked, and like, I mean, obviously, in the context of what what you have just said, the answer is they fucking did. Um, but I don't. I also I don't think that that's like what people mean they don't mean like well why weren't why didn't the the bund as if people like know or care about the bund but um you know why why weren't there organized militias you know why weren't there things like that i think they mean like why didn't everybody fight back you know why didn't people being uh pushed into cattle cars fight back why didn't people being pushed into gas chambers fight back and um i wanted to just like talk about that real quick yeah because this is brought up in sort of two overlapping contexts, uh, both of which I really have a problem with. Um, and the first is just its basic victim blaming. And I, I want to say, like, we, we talk about victim blaming a lot um, in, in our 
you know, like current conversation. And it's usually in the context of sexual assault. And when people talk mm-hmm. about victim blaming, they imply that like the reason it's wrong is that it's it's cruel and harmful to the victim, which is absolutely true. Like that is one of the reasons it's wrong. Um, but the real danger of victim blaming to me is less is more that it lets the real people responsible off the hook. Mm-hmm. Um, it misses the point about who and what actually causes harm. And here, in this context, I'm not actually talking about the Nazis. I'm talking about non-Jews who could have fought back uh, but didn't. Um, you know, and you you have obviously already talked in previous episodes about um, some non-Jews who did fight back. And I know, you know, we've started to talk about Jews who did as well. And I know we're going to talk about that more. But um, that way of fighting, that like forming of small dedicated groups that take up arms, that's like, that's what you do uh, when there has not been a mass movement to protect Mm -hmm. you. Um, And there should have been a mass movement of non-Jews opposing the Nazi targeting of everybody they targeted. And it was, you know, these so-called Aryan uh, non-Jews who were the people in Nazi Germany who actually had power. And if there had been a mass movement of such people opposing genocide, it would have worked. And I can I can actually offer like proof of that um, anecdotal proof, mm-hmm. um, which is that in 1943, um, basically all of the Jews remaining in Berlin were arrested. 1,800 of them were Jewish men who were married to non-Jewish women, and they were separated out and sent to a a specific prison awaiting deportation. And their wives, their non-Jewish wives, came down to the street outside the prison, which is called the Rosenstrasse, um, and said, hey, give us back our goddamn husbands. And (laughs) they refused to leave, and they ended up staging a large, non-violent, very public demonstration, just demanding their husbands back. And they had great popular support, um, despite the government basically trying to stop the word of this protest from getting out, despite the fact that it was happening during Allied bombing raids, and despite the fact that they were, you know, German women publicly talking about their marriages to Jewish men in 1943. People walking by joined in the protests. You know, women would have to go off to work or to take care of their children, and other women would Mm -hmm. come and take their place. And they just kept doing this until eventually the Nazi government gave them their husbands back. They literally released these people, including ones who had already been deported to to concentration camps. They brought them back and released them to their wives. It worked. None of the women were attacked, arrested, or harmed in any way during these protests. So that's, you know, a very cool and inspiring story. Um, And, you know, I absolutely respect and am in awe of what those women did. But it also speaks very badly of every other German who, who could have done what these women did just as easily, right? If they had cared as much about their neighbors as these women did about their husbands, they could have stopped a genocide. You know, if they had cared about the murders of Jews in Roma, everyone else, there would have been no Holocaust. And I mentioned, you know, that there were 1,800 men at Rosenstrasse who were married to non-Jews, but there were 10,000 Jewish Berliners who were arrested at that same time. And it was only those 1,800 Mm -hmm. men who were released. 
if Berlin had cared as much about all 10,000, this would have been very different. And so the question to me isn't, well, why didn't the Jews fight back? You know, the people who were already marginalized and under threat, it's why didn't everyone else? Um, people who already had power and who the Nazi government would hesitate about slaughtering en masse. Why didn't they step up? It, that's the question that we should be asking. And the other reason that I, the other thing I wanted to address about this question is the other place it gets brought up is in a Zionist context, which mm -hmm. I think you've sort of alluded to a little bit. The Zionists uh, really like to set up a dichotomy between the brave, strong, fighting Israeli and like the meek, martyred diaspora Jew, uh, which is a bullshit mm. dichotomy, you know, mm -hmm. partially because what Israel does is not fighting back. It's a colonial occupation that displaces, murders, imprisons and marginalizes Palestinians and then punishes them for fighting back. And partially because this dichotomy has victim blaming and, you know, I would argue internalized anti-Semitism baked into it. Mm -hmm. And it's it's this it's dismissive and disrespectful of actual Jewish history, you know, portraying the diaspora as nothing but oppression. And I love the diaspora, uh, which is the source of my culture. Um, and as much as Zionists don't want to admit it, it's Jewish history. It's most of Jewish history. Um, so that's what I wanted to say, you know, before we started or, you know, not before we start, but before we before we continued. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, the Jews who fought back were amazing. They were right to do so, uh, but they should not be used as a weapon against people who were murdered by Nazis, which like feels almost too obvious to say, but, you know, I'm saying it. Um, and I, I think that people sometimes have this thought of like, well, they were going to die anyway, you know, so what do they have to lose by fighting back? And it's like, I don't know. How about the possibility of survival? Um, every yeah. member of my family who did survive the Holocaust did so by not fighting back. Um, you know, by just doing their best to stay alive or waiting for the chance to get away. Um, yeah. My great grandmother was able to save her daughter, my grandmother, that way, along with several other women. Um, and I don't think it's on anyone who hasn't been in a situation like that to to judge the decisions people made under that kind of threat. You know, I I love this history of resistance, but like I I'm aware of the ability of people to turn that history of resistance against of against victims of oppression and. Uh, I'm not down with that. So yeah. I just wanted to to make that really clear. And I'm sorry because I talked for a long time and none of it was funny. <laughs> I mean, you're the one who is accusing me of um, being too serious. So you want me to tell another joke? You want me to tell another joke about anti-Semitism? Uh, I can't <laughs> say no. I feel like I have to say yes, but it's I'm going to I'm going to make awkward faces the whole time. And then but yep. OK, please tell me a joke about anti-Semitism. All right, so there's this uh, there's this town. There's got it's got one Jew in it, um, mm -hmm. and he's he's a merchant. He's a he sells ribbons door to door, mm -hmm. and he knocks on this man's door and he says, "Hello, uh, would you like to buy some ribbons today? I sell ribbons." And the guy who is a total anti semite is like, "Oh yeah, I'll buy some ribbons. I will buy as much ribbon as it takes to measure from your belly button to the tip of your penis. Get the fuck out of here." And so he he goes on his, he's like, okay. And he writes that down. He goes on his merry way. Uh, and then the next day, the anti-Semite wakes up and there's a truck backing up to his house. And he comes to the door and he's like, what is going on? And the ribbon merchant is there and is like, it's your delivery. You see, my belly button is right here, but I was circumcised in Poland. <laughs> I knew this was going to be it. The second you said penis, I was like, this is a circumcision joke. I know you it. can cut that one too if you need to. I just had to break the tension. 
I simply will yeah, not. Yeah, no, it's in there. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's going to do it for today. Uh, when we come back on Wednesday, we're going to talk about the ghetto itself and the resistance movements within it. Both, and you know, hopefully, we'll get to talk more about some of that stuff you're talking about about what resistance gets privileged and talked about and what resistance doesn't. You know. Any All right. Final thoughts about? Oh yeah. Yeah, thoughts, plugs, anything you want to tell people about? I would like people to go find uh, IFAC Fund on Twitter. Um, that's at I-F-A-K-F-U-N-D. And uh, IFAC Fund buys individual first aid kits for people. And if you send them a donation, they'll turn it into first aid kits, and they'll put those in people's hands for free. And that's really helpful um, living as we do in a time where sudden horrible things happen often. Yay. And, and we'll be back Wednesday. Yay. 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 I, I promise I won't tell any more jokes. I, you can tell yeah. jokes. I don't believe yeah. you. <laughs> Inappropriate humor is a coping strategy. I, I really <laughs> recommend it. I think this whole thing is a story about people holding on to culture, so. <laughs> See you Wednesday. Bye. Bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV... This is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.